Welcome to part two of this podcast episode on intersectionality. If you haven't yet listened to part one, please do so to help you understand the discussion and make the connections well. To continue with the discussion, Tammy, you mentioned something about COVID, the intersection of COVID with disability. Could you please highlight more on how that intersection affects people living with disabilities? Sure. Thanks, Barry. And of course, needless to say that, um, you know, we're all still very much living in a COVID context. Um, here in Canada, you know, the, the, from a, a national perspective, we're talking about a sixth wave. But if we go back to um, the early days of, of the pandemic, when it was, um, you know, first declared a pandemic, and uh, the immediate response um, uh, that was uh, some of the restrictions and the public health measures that were taken. Um, unfortunately, from the perspective of the disability movement here in Canada, there's a very strong perspective and, 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 and uh, a reflection that um, people with disabilities were almost regarded as um, uh, being considered last in all of the policy, whether public health, whether uh, the financial uh, resources that were um, initiated uh, and supported for uh, the public at large, um, uh, I think midway, and Bonnie, you can speak to this more because I think you were on this committee, uh, midway within that first wave or maybe even within the second wave of COVID in Canada, at the federal level, uh, there was a, a ministerial advisory group that was convened. But for many within uh, the disability justice movement, it felt like it was too little, too late. Um, there have been financial um, uh, incentives and, and, and benefits uh, that have come to uh, those who qualify, for example, for disability tax credits. However, for example, if we look at uh, people with episodic disabilities who um, are often uh, in, in quote unquote normal times, uh, find it hard to qualify for um, uh, benefits uh, because of the um, fluctuating and dynamic um, uh, impact of their disability, they don't qualify for a disability tax credit. So they would not have even received um, the benefit that was uh, given by uh, the government. Um, uh, so when we talk about um, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic and people with disabilities, uh, again, uh, we have to look at um, very early on in the trajectory of COVID, uh, who was working in the front line, uh, sort of the ethno-racial um, uh, uh, demographics of who was working in the front line uh, as uh, essential uh, workers, who was impacted by um, uh, COVID-19, uh, you know, being tested positive. And now who's living with long COVID? Uh, when we refer to um, ethical and equitable data collection, uh, again, within the pandemic setting, there was a whole host of debate around um, ethno-racial data collection because it was not 
being collected. Traditionally, um, uh, for many communities, this data is not collected. And when it is, it is weaponized. It's, it's not ethically or equitably collected, analyzed, and then used as evidence you know, to make evidence-informed programming or policy recommendations. So believe me, I can go on and on about the, the impact that COVID-19 and almost the floodgates that have opened because of the pandemic. Um, but I think, again, as with any situation, there's the opportunity. So within many communities, we are talking about um, ethical and equitable uh, data collection led by the community, analyzed by the community, used by the community. Um, and I think that uh, just from a general universal perspective, the lack of ethno-racial based data within the disability movement here in Canada um, is something that we definitely have to move forward to amending and using in a strength-based evidence-informed way to um, improve policies and, and practice, as we've been referring to. Can I add to that from uh, an international level? I, I mean, I can talk about the Canadian level that reinforce a study that we did that reinforces everything Tammy uh, says, but I, what I want to do is just um, illustrate how many of the themes that Tammy's talking about in Canada also echo around the world for people with disabilities. So, <clears throat> There was a, a survey of people with disabilities around the world, um, the majority of whom, uh, those who responded were women, um, which said that um, uh, almost a majority of people had lost income that um, as a result of COVID. So that's a really significant learning um, that uh, the income of people with disabilities around the world is already low and it's so precarious that when times like COVID come, people with disabilities are at the forefront of losing even the limited income that they have. And that's very true in Canada, but this was a global survey. Um, then there was also a really significant um, relationship in the survey between that loss of income and mental health. Um, and uh, the loss of supports that come with it. So one of the quotes that's there, people felt more anxious because they lost their income. And they also felt anxious because they feared losing their income. So that sense that uh, the precariousness of losing, you know, what in many cases is what, whether it's work or other forms of livelihood, it could be market gardening, it could be um, bartering. When you begin to lose that, it also shapes your um, mental health. And people also experience mental health um, exacerbations because of a lack of communications. Um, a lot of the COVID policy responses meant um, making people's mental health situation around the world um, more precarious. And this was especially true for people of disabilities. What we also found around the world was that women and girls with disabilities were disproportionately affected by rights violations and especially um, increased violence and abuse and a lack of access to services and supports, especially to, to respond to violence. So those are some of the big takeaways from a global survey around the impacts of COVID on people with disabilities. 
I'm so glad you brought up the gender-based violence piece, Deborah, because that was what I was going to speak to, right? I mean, certainly, Mary, in a Canadian context, we've heard all about the increased rates of gender-based violence to women in Canada. But as a reminder to your listeners, the frontline services for women with disabilities don't exist. Um, this is just a fact. In, in a Canadian context, for anybody who thinks everybody's got somewhere to go, that's just not true. And I don't blame the shelters. I blame the government in terms of long-term policies that have excluded women with disabilities from their policies in ensuring that shelters and transition houses have the resources they need to provide those services to diverse women, including women with disabilities. I think the other thing that I wanna point out just because it is, it's such a big part of what my COVID-19 experience has been as a disability advocate is the reality that the government of Canada chose to table and pass legislation called Bill C-7, which was an expansion of MAID, which is medical assistance in dying. And to do that during COVID, of course, was one of the most alarming experiences I've had as a, a human rights advocate because the condition for which, and I assume some of your listeners perhaps support MAID, and as a principal, I can understand why MAID for people who are near death is important, but Bill C-7 made disability a reason to access medical assistance in dying. And we spent an awful lot of our time simply trying to get, get the government to understand that in addition to all of the suffering that we just described that women with disabilities and people with disabilities already were going through to lose hope and to feel that the only choice you might have is made is a reality now in Canada and a reality that many of us know is actively going on as we speak. Quite disheartening perspective to, to hear about COVID and disability. Uh, we see how it has exposed a lot of inequalities in the disability community. And I'm hoping that going forward, these inequalities will be addressed. And I can just say it's very disheartening for sure. Um, so um, we'll move on to the next uh, question for, for this discussion. We talked about an amazing project that you are part of. Um, called Engendering Disability Inclusive Development Partnership. Um, it would be great to share some examples of how you're using an intersectional lens in this work. Uh, we can use EDIDS as a case study to talk about some ways in which you apply an intersectional lens. Maybe I can start. Um, so um, as we said in the last episode, EDID is a, a, about creating space for and working with women and girls with disabilities for rights and justice. What we understand from an, an intersectional practice point of view is that we can't assume that all women and girls in one country or in one region have the same experiences. And so we need to start from um, the inclusion of diverse women and girls with disabilities in our partnership so that diverse um, perspectives can be uh, included from the very beginning of the work. Um, then as we develop our research practices, again, we begin with looking and identifying um, who are, what is the diversity in this particular uh, situation or location? Um, who are the people whose perspectives have been um, less visible, less evident? Um, how, how can we address 
um, their perspectives first, um, rather than the, the most evident, most present, those who always get heard perspective. So let me give you the for instance of the Canada, but I mentioned earlier, both South Africa and Vietnam, where this is also an approach. Um, Haiti is a bit of a, a, a different ball of wax uh, in our project, but I want to just talk about the Canadian case study right now, uh, because we have chosen to begin our qualitative research by focusing on what we who we call diverse women and girls with disabilities. And in the Canadian context, that means uh, racialized women with and girls with disabilities. It means women and girls with disabilities who have experiences in foster care settings, women and girls with disabilities who have been institutionalized or are currently institutionalized, whether it's in prisons, whether it's in uh, long-term care settings, whether it's in um, group homes. Um, um, we look at um, those who have um, uh, women and girls with disabilities and gender diverse people. Um, so we include gender diversity as a piece of the diverse piece that we're looking at. Uh, we look at um, experiences of those who um, uh, are, are newcomers to Canada um, or are in newcomer families, um, as well as those who are refugees who may have um, uh, not so stable status in Canada. Um, so what that takes is the attention from the beginning to these perspectives, but it also takes developing relationships with um, folks who often haven't thought about disability. So let me give you the, and I'm sure Tammy can talk more about this, but um, let me give the example of seeking to do research with immigrant people with disabilities. Um, off, it is reaching out to settlement workers or settlement organizations who often haven't thought with the disability lens. And so it's always first starting that set of relationships before you can even begin to do the research. Um, and I'm hoping Bonnie will talk a bit about the Canadian Feminist Disability Coalition piece or whatever, uh, where we're intentionally reaching out to support uh, the development of, of leadership and capacity with women and girls with disabilities. But so in terms of research, it's including perspectives that have been invisible or marginalized at the beginning. Um, creating new relationships across movements, um, right? So working with LGBTQ-S organizations in order to bring disability to their thinking, actually doing the research and then using an intersectional analysis framework that continually asks the question, who benefits, who loses? Um, it asks the question, at, in terms of policy, who's present, who's not, whose experiences are included, who's not. So it's always looking for those power um, inequalities, inequities. And then finally, in sharing the research after analysis, in making sure that we highlight again and again and again, 
um, in media interviews, in our reports, in fact sheets, the experiences of those who have been invisible uh, or who haven't been, um, been present in our research. So that even though it's easy to talk about women and girls with disabilities, what we talk about is racialized women and girls with disabilities, LGBTQ women and girls with disabilities and gender diverse people. We talk about women and girls with disabilities who've been in foster care. We talk about indigenous women and girls with disabilities. So it's attention um, to intersectionality. It's a practice of intersectionality and its analysis um, through an intersectional lens, at least from my perspective. Um, so yes, I will definitely speak for a moment about the uh, Feminist um, Disability Coalition in Canada, which is again an extension of the Canada study that Deborah was talking about, which in fact is going to be led by Black and Indigenous and young and rural and Northern um, coordinators. The, the network that we, we are building with the leaders that we've got in place Sarah Jamma from DJNO is a good example of one of the, the um, people that's going to be part of this work. That's a good example of, like I said, somebody who clearly has deep reach into uh, the social justice movement, the disability justice movement, and the Black disability movement in, in a very concrete way. And it is the kind of um, cohort we're trying to attract into this coalition, into this network. Um, I want to really push out to the, you know, we, we, we're talking a little bit about the research methodologies, and I, I want to say something that I think is really important and, and very clear to Dawn, which is that real intersectional research does not happen until you can come to a place of co-creation. And co-creation really has to be at the center of this because intersectionality in the way that it's being talked about and presented creates a list and nobody intended that. It's not what the intention behind intersectionality is, but in, in the way that it's being practiced, right? It's become a tick the box exercise for, for too many people and or a power dynamic problem because you have a dominant group, right? If you have a dominant group leading the research, like it or not, like I said, it's very difficult for people to step outside of where they have ownership. And that's my experience is that when you challenge people in terms of what they've always done, their tendency is to become even more protective of what it is that they hold. Like I said, so the, you know, the real challenge going forward as far as intersectionality is going to be in that coming to that place of co-creation and understanding the power dynamics have to fall away, right? That white women in particular, of course, are, are, are the first group we're talking about, but indeed it, it is nascent and anybody who's, like I said, stood on one, block for too long, it's very, very hard to get off that and say, okay, I'm going to come down here where everybody else is and just be one of everyone else. It's hard. And I wanted to talk about in a Canadian context, I think something that is an interesting first step that Dawn has been taking that I, that I know, you know, spills over into the Canada study, which is a project we've been funded through the Canadian Women's Foundation for that's sort of turned into an initiative called Girls Without Barriers. Because Girls Without Barriers at this stage is focused, again, with a, a large group of intersectional researchers on developing a research methodology with girls, not about girls, with girls. And I just bring that back right as this point in terms of what we have to do, what the EDID project is doing in terms of the methodology that Deborah and all of us are, are working with, which is um, 
and you know the way that Tammy described right at the beginning and I am and I am and it is about I me and all of us as opposed to seeing this as something we are doing for this is about us and you know I don't want to use the cliche because we've stopped saying nothing about us without us at Dawn Canada and certainly others are we're saying nothing without us period because we represent such a large cohort in any policy conversation Thank you so much. Um, Tommy, do you have any perspective to share on that particular topic? The only thing I would add is uh, the, the point that Bonnie ended on, the, you know, the nothing about us without us. And, um, you know, very early on uh, in my life within the disability justice movement here in Canada, I would often ask myself, who is the us that, that everyone keeps talking about? Because when I go to meetings and I'm the only one, I don't see us, you know. So, you know, we, we have to um, we have to recognize that intersectional theory, intersectional practice, the result is going to be um, a, a shifting hierarchy. I think both Deborah and, and Bonnie alluded to this. And when I say shifting hierarchies, it's because those who have not seen themselves in the us, in the nothing about us, without us, um, as we uh, use intersectional theory, as we put it into practice, and as change happens, who the us's are will look very different, will sound very different. And, um, uh, you know, to, to I suppose, couch the language of what I would refer to as backlash and to expect the backlash because it is changing the hierarchy. But that is exactly how the us and the collective us and those who have been marginalized as us will be part of the leadership of the movement will be part of um, leading the research, the education, the policy change, the practice change. So recognize that the us will sound different, will look different, but that means that it's a good thing. So it's not, it's not a bad thing, it'll be a good thing. This is the end of part two. We just explored what it looks like to take an intersectional approach in disability inclusive development. This discussion is not over yet and we shall continue it with part three. Please listen to part three. Thank you.